Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. We had to dust these things off. It'd been a little bit. We uh, had a, a rough stretch there where I got sick, and then Serena got sick, and yeah, timing hasn't been great, but we're ready to get back at it. Yeah, I need to, because I, I can't think about the basketball team anymore, respectfully. No, I mean, you don't want to think about the basketball Correct. team anymore. There, I, I'm done. It's over. It's selection. We record this on selection Sunday. There's nothing to say. So it is officially over. Yeah. Well, I, the NIT selection show is at 10. I guess that's technically it. I was thinking earlier that the, uh, I feel like the NIT and the CBI are kind of like how in hockey, the Big Ten does a shootout that like doesn't officially count for NCA purposes. The NCA doesn't have a shootout, but the Big Ten's like, let's just do it for kicks. And the NCA is like, fine, but that, that doesn't count. We don't care about that. That's sort of what the NIT and the CBI are, as far as I'm concerned. Like, you can do it, and like Michigan's probably going to be in one, but I don't have to care or <laughs> acknowledge the results, basically. What a nice way to transition to the much more fun hockey team. Hell yeah. <laughs> We're just moving on from the basketball team. I don't right? have was, anything to say. <laughs> I really don't. Like, that was miserable to watch for the last month like whole season really it was just a really frustrating team that was like it wasn't bad it just never like they just never could win a close game i mean i might argue that the second half of that rutgers game in which they scored almost no two-point baskets from the from the field until there was like i don't know two minutes left and it was over is actually objectively bad well sure i mean (laughs) like it was bad at points it was definitely actually bad and not just mediocre periods where they looked really bad that's entirely fair um but yeah they were just frustrating all year like they were a player short or a shot short. it was just they were always not quite there and Mm -hmm. that carried through all the way to the end and here we are absolutely allergic to winning close games I like your idea of just talking about hockey, though. It's way more fun. It, that's I tried. I tried to avoid talking about this at all. I really <laughs> did. But, you know, we'll do the hockey team for a little bit. And then we will do what this podcast is made for, which is football. I want to talk about football. Okay? That's right. And with the basketball season over. It's football n- season now. shootout standard. It is football season It's football now. season now. I don't make the rules. Those are the rules. That's right. I mean, like, so you're technically, like I guess I will enjoy March Madness. Like, it's fun, even course, when Michigan yeah. is not in it. And then maybe it's football season, like April 7th or whatever, when, whenever the national championship game is over. It's football season now. Don't talk to me about baseball. It's not real. It doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. That'll be right around when the Frozen Four wraps up, too. So we'll have some closure to the Michigan hockey season one way or another as well. On that note, as we're recording this on Selection Sunday, that means last night we watched Michigan destroy Ohio State, pulled away late with a trip to the Big Ten title game on the line in the Big Ten semifinals. I think I've seen this film before. (laughs) Just like football. It was was very satisfying. And it's been uh, kind of a wild year for hockey. I mean, somewhat similar to the basketball team. They were incredibly young, lost, you know, their three top five draft picks to the NHL. And despite that, and despite all the Mel Pearson weirdness where Brandon Norado has been coaching this year as interim head coach, they have now clinched the, uh, well, they've clinched a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. I don't know exactly where they're going to go. They, they're still incredibly talented and incredibly fun on offense. The defense is pretty shaky, which is not a great spot to be in when you're going into a single elimination tournament where, you know, any number of random events can end your season. But I don't know they're 23 11 and 3 and one win away from winning a big 10 title and like i said they've clinched a number one seed in the tournament they've given themselves they've put themselves in position where they could win it all 
and when all you got to do is win four games and hope you get lucky, that's, I don't know, you've kind of done all you can. So cross your fingers, hold on to your butts, et cetera, et cetera, and hope for the best over the next few weeks. Yes. Have I indulged you enough? Can we talk about the sport I like now? Yeah, yeah. We can move on to football now. Hockey's have, fine. If it's we're going to talk about basketball, I've I feel actually, like we had to get a little bit on I've hockey. actually started to enjoy it this season. I've watched enough of it with you who actually knows how to observe it to learn a thing or two about, okay, like, I know when I see like a bad turnover now, like before I would be like, I don't know, it's all random. The puck flies every direction. What the fuck is a turnover in hockey? And you There's know how no... to get really fired up about, you know, Ohio State and Michigan State, you know, delivering some cheap, uh, cheap shots and Correct. You, you get I'm, I'm figuring it out. It took me a while, but I'm getting there and it's been fun. However, there is a star of this show. Okay. And that star involves... 11 people on one side and 11 people on the other. I thought and, you were going to say you. Well, You're not the star of the show? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Toe meets leather, baby. Like, we're, we're going, okay? It's time for the real show. Spring football. No one has ever referred to spring football as the real show before. <laughs> I think, I think that's... The, the least real possible it's the version first, of the That's show. the first time that phrase has ever been uttered in human history. It's also, like, pretty... From a Michigan standpoint, it's like pretty uninteresting this year just because I don't know if there's ever been a time when I've been following Michigan football, at least, that there's been fewer unanswered questions about the team, about, you know, position battles or, you know, what's the quarterback situation look like, blah, blah, blah. Like almost all of that stuff is already kind of established after last year with so much coming back. So it's a pretty narrow list of things that we are kind of trying to find out here. But there are a few things, and so that's kind of where we started and, and how we're going to play out this episode, I guess, is we talked through what are the things that we actually care about, and we came up with five things that we're actually sort of interested to find out about or learn more about in spring. Some of them we're going to get, I think, more definitive answers than others, but we're just going to talk through those five things one at a time, and then a couple other sort of random football tidbits at the end we'll come back to. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the fact that you and I are going to be in the big house in 20 days. Oh my God, you're right. Right? Yeah. Spring game's not too far off. That's awesome. So in the run-up to the spring game, yeah, what we decided to do is just list out kind of, okay, what are, what, are, what are the things that, like, when we see the tweets or when we hear the reports, like, make our ears perk up a little bit? Like, what are the things that we're really looking for and curious about? So, Matt, go ahead. Kick us off. All right. Our number one thing, and this is not a surprise, I don't think, to probably anybody who's listening to this, but we talked about it for... A lot of the, you know, the stretch coming out of the season was what's the number two corner spot going to look like? Because we lost DJ Turner, we lost Jemin Green, and there was just no obvious replacement at that spot across from Will Johnson. Yeah, and they kind of didn't make their way in the portal either. It doesn't look like they tried that hard, frankly. Like, they, they wanted the one guy who went to Ohio State. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, Davis and Igbenusen. Yes. Transferred from Ole Miss to Ohio State. But, like, I don't remember reading about anybody else that they were very seriously considering a take from the transfer portal at corner. And I kind of feel like that makes sense. I have a theory. It's totally unsubstantiated by anything except my feelings. But, like, transfer portal corners suck. Like, I just generally feel like it's a, it's a position that is so so important in this day and age of like wide receiver quarterback dominant spread passing game football that like nobody is letting their good corners walk out the door and if they do it's like a 
um, you know, a mid-major, like a mid-major, like it is basketball season, I suppose, but like a non-power five guy that wants to make his way to a power five school, like there might be a little, like there's a reason Michigan State secondary sucked despite being a whole bunch of SEC cast-offs. Well, yeah, I, mean, I the feel like those guys aren't that good. Yeah, but I mean, there but are some guys. how often are like top flight corners leaving, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Well, there aren't a lot. And I think that was part of Michigan's problem is that the one guy who came up early on was uh, Fentrell Cypress, who transferred out of Virginia. Virginia was fucking terrible this last year, and he was, I think, second-team All-ACC, like a legitimately good starter. And I think he just wanted to move up to a team where he could actually win something meaningful this year, and so he ended up at Florida State, which is going to be top 10 going into the season. Outside of that, there were probably not a lot of guys. It was more guys like Igbenusen, where it was you know guys who have potential or maybe they're a starter. That's what I'm saying, though. They're not moving. Like If you're good, you're not moving as a corner. That's a theory that I've totally made up on nothing but feelings and the fact that Michigan State's secondary blows. (laughs) That's that's my proof. Yeah, Michigan was not looking for anything like what Michigan State's been taking. Like guys who couldn't see the field for Alabama or whatever. Yeah, Georgia, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that. That's my theory. I I have two pieces of evidence. That's my evidence. (laughs) I'm not compiling more. More. don't argue with me it's my theory is fact now thank you <laughs> fair enough well what we found out pretty early on I mean after two days of spring ball was that Amorian Walker has moved over there is not only taking snaps but according to Jim Harbaugh is the uh, what, what do you say he sees him as the a, a starter now or something along those lines I can't something exactly yeah what the, the the upshot of it was presumptive starter at the right. number two corner spot to be fair, Jim Harbaugh says a lot of people are starters. Remember last year before the season, he named like 27 starters across both sides of the ball. And it was like, that's obviously not how football works. But you're you're just kind of naming guys who are going to be like significant like contributors. Basically, yeah, I mean, I do starters. think it's fair to be like Donovan Edwards and Blake Corum are both starters. Right, like, I yeah, think that is yeah. a fair way to describe them, even if only one of them takes the first offensive snap at running back. So, like, I get it. There can be more than 22 starters. I do think sure. that's right. But, yeah, there was a lot of people, like, splitting hairs on the math. And I was like, you guys, we, we understand what he's <laughs> saying, right? Like, starter-level player, starter, like, right. starter-level contributor. My point is that he's pretty generous with the term starter. And so whether that is actually like a real thing with Amorian Walker, I don't know for sure yet, but it seems entirely possible given that the only real alternative there seemed to be Jaden McBurrows as a guy they've talked about for the last year or so as somebody they thought was really going to be a player. But then he was hurt for most of last year, had the, you know, got his head smashed in the Michigan State thing and didn't really get a chance to do much on the field. So we don't, we don't really know what Jaden McBurrows is and, other than that, it's guys who have basically never been able to see the field, and there's just no real options there. So it does seem plausible. I, I have mixed feelings about it that <laughs> for the second year in a row, you flip the guy from receiver to corner, and he's just kind of an instant starter. Which, right. Not everybody is. Mikey <sighs> Sane is still the revelation, but I don't know that everybody is, right? Right. Asking for, or expecting for that to be the case that, oh, he's he's a great athlete. I mean, six foot two, you know, unbelievable, like three cone drill, agility, combine type stuff, like that's all great, but also Mikey Sanders still was recruited out of high school as a corner by some Power 5 schools, including Virginia Tech. Like, he was a legit, like, he could have been a Power 5 corner for sure, and that was very evident when he moved. Amorian Walker maybe could be that. Like, as we were talking about this, we were doing a little bit of research, and apparently, uh, I think it was Sam Webb mentioned that Alabama had offered Walker as a corner. I didn't remember seeing him, like, seeing that come up that, at the time he was being seriously looked at by anybody as a defensive back rather than a receiver. But apparently that was a thing that was in consideration in his recruitment. And then actually last year during spring ball, 
he took some snaps on the defensive side of the ball before kind of settling back on the offensive side. So this does seem to be something that was not just a like spur of the moment. Oh shit, we don't have any corners. Let's try somebody there. Like this is something that apparently has been in Harbaugh's mind or in the defensive staff's mind since at least last year. And um, I mean, I, I'm optimistic that a guy with his profile and who has at least thought about and seen some <laughs> practice time there can step in and develop enough that he can be like a capable starter this year. I think asking for anything more than that for a guy who's just flipped over and hasn't seen any real playing time yet on that side of the ball, anything more than that is probably unrealistic. Yeah, I think that's right. So definitely the number one curiosity. I mean, when Matt and I started prepping for this episode, he's like, what are you, you know, what are you thinking about? What's number one? I was like, corner immediately corner. It's, it's and it was exactly the same here. I yeah. Mean, that's the one like, real question mark on this team is that that could be a real black hole on the defense if they just can't identify a number two corner and they can get picked on on one side of the field that's really the only spot on either side of the ball assuming that there's no like major injuries yeah so just hoping that they find something there where you can feel relatively confident about it I don't know that we're going to feel that coming out of spring or even out of fall camp until you really see it on the field the one other I guess possibility there is that well McBurrows obviously could step up and I assume he's still going to be in competition through fall they've also talked a little bit about Jim doesn't eliminate competition ever everybody will be in competition till kingdom come exactly yeah but the one other possibility I was going to mention was it sounds like uh, Mikey Sanders still is playing some outside corner that's something that I think given what he's shown that he can do at corner like in you know man up coverage probably makes sense if you think that somebody like um, Rod Moore could slide down to nickel, which was kind of what we thought was going to happen last year, was that Moore was going to play nickel, and then Makari Page and RJ Moten were going to be the starting safeties. And Moten kind of ended up taking a step back, and so it was mostly Page and Page and Moore at safety, and Sanders still enabled that by being so good at nickel that they didn't really have to slide a safety around. But that is another possibility this year, that you've got three guys who have shown themselves to be at least competent or much better in the case of, of Moore and I think Page toward the end of last year at safety, that obviously gives you more flexibility with what you do with the corners. So I, I think if that were the case that Walker just really wasn't ready and McBurrows also just doesn't get there this year, you probably end up seeing more of Sainer still at outside corner and they move more around and kind of fiddle with the safeties to make it work and get their five best guys in the field so you don't have a real problem spot. Yeah, I think that totally checks out. Hopefully Walker just fixes it. I mean, if he can be decent this year with his, you know, a guy who's like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, I think. Yeah, I think 6'3". And with that level of athleticism, I mean, if he could be on the path to being what Will Johnson is, like, obviously you'd have an unbelievable corner combination. I, on the path to being what Will Johnson is is a pretty tall fucking order. Well, right. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's not going to happen this year, just to be clear. I'm not saying he's going to be even what Will Johnson was last year because Will Johnson was – he came in as a ready-made starter and five-star. Like, a guy who was groomed as a top-tier corner for years. I mean, I'm out. pretty sure that Pro Football Focus said if he was draft eligible, he'd be a top 10 pick in the NFL draft today. Yeah, that's right. I think Which, that's pretty optimistic. To be that, honest, that, it strikes me as bold, but like, yeah, I mean, let's not, let's let's keep the expectations for Walker yeah. reasonable, okay, next to what's playing on the other side of the field. Right. It was more like if Walker can look this year kind of like Will Johnson looked in the first half of last season. Like a guy who was sort of figuring it out, but you could see the athleticism there and he could, you know, he, he had enough physical skill to make plays. And as he figured it out over time, you started to see like, okay, this guy's going to be a real player. 
that's kind of the hope for a Morgan Walker, but like at a scaled back version because he's so far behind on the learning curve. Right. Luckily for us, our season opens with garbage, garbage, garbage. He's got some time. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a minute before it matters. Yeah. So, so if you think so, he's... for if all of you, yeah, this is a fight I'll pick. But like for everybody who's ragging on the schedule, especially Michigan fans, like I get it when other opposing fans do it. They're just it's an it's bullshit. Like it's it's, it's rivalry yeah. bullshit. But no, 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 Michigan fans, I get that you like seeing marquee games on your TV. I, for one, don't, kind of. I like to see Michigan win by 90, and I don't care who they beat. So, I like, like to see Michigan in the playoff, and I don't care what it takes correct. to get there, which means yes, that's my point. <laughs> more easy wins. So give, let them have their warm-up. Let them have their preseason. I enjoy it. I like seeing them get ready. I like not throwing them immediately into the fire. I don't know. It soothes my anxiety, okay? Stop complaining. That is potentially a helpful thing this year, where if you have a guy like that who is raw, but you think he can be a player, you've got probably half the season to get him ready. And if you think six or seven games in, he'll be there, then, yeah. I mean, that's literally what they did with Will Johnson, right? Like, he's he was ready in his own right, just because, he, like you said, he's been groomed to play corner forever. Right. But nonetheless, like... It, you know, college ready and and understanding the playbook and understanding where he needs to be relative to our like those are not the same thing, right? And so it still takes a while, even with the ability to string those like to bring those guys up to speed fully with like the game and the speed of the game and how like you expect someone like Will Johnson to just dominate fools in high school by sheer athletic ability and whatever yeah. else that like it, it, there's a bit of there's a learning curve there no matter how good you are. Yeah. And so that's what they did last year. Well, and they didn't really have to do it with Will Johnson last year because Jemon Green was there, right? I mean, Jemon Green was the starter for the first half of the season until Will Johnson kind of overtook him with his play on the field. And I mean, this year, even if Walker is, even if you're looking at Walker and saying, we'd be better off right now with Sainer still playing corner and moving Rod Moore down to nickel, you might let Walker just feel it out and work through any problems he has in the first half of the year if you think that by... Ohio State, basically. Right. He's I'm just be saying he was able to get brought up to speed because you're beating Hawaii by 42 oh, sure. yeah. at halftime. <laughs> right. Yeah. It gives you more, it just gives you unlimited margin for error, basically, to get guys prepared and let them figure out what they're doing right and wrong. Correct. Unless Will Johnson's getting beat for seven touchdowns, it doesn't matter. And unless a Moran yeah, Walker's getting beat problem. for seven touchdowns, it doesn't, like, that's my point, right? That hopefully won't be a problem. Yes. <laughs> I don't think it'll be, <laughs> Inshallah. I don't think it'll be quite, quite that bad. Uh, all right, so that's item number one for us. Pretty clear consensus number one. Item number two, we're going to get into some very uh, hashtag B1G stuff here with the next couple items on our list. Offensive line. And this is not really a question exactly in terms of competence. Like They have not only uh, Trevor Keegan and Zach Zinner coming back at guard, but they've got multiple starters at tackle coming back, right? And Carson Barnhart and Trent A. Jones. They did lose Ryan Hayes, but Barnhart and Jones both started last year at right tackle. They brought in the two transfers from Stanford in Drake Nugent and Miles Hinton. And they brought in Ladarius Henderson from Arizona State, who was all Pac-12 two years ago, kind of swung between guard and tackle. So they've got plenty of options there. I didn't even mention Jeff Percy, who started last year at left tackle in the Rutgers game when Hayes was hurt. I think that's right. And looked pretty good, actually. Uh, a guy who's a former walk-on, but it just blossomed into this gigantic like relatively athletic left tackle type who sometimes you get lucky with stuff like that and anyway the point of that is that they have a plethora of guys who they can throw out there in some combination or another and the question now is really 
what does that combination look like and how much of a drop off if any is there at the spots that they're replacing like probably some from ryan hayes to whoever plays left tackle hayes was pretty good not elite he sometimes had trouble with especially like high-end edge rushers but i don't expect that there's anybody who's going to be quite at hayes level coming in and then you're probably going to have somewhat of a drop off also at center like olawolo team was the best center in the country last year and Drake Nugent is Drake Nugent also is a very good center. I mean, Pro Football Focus I think had him as one of the top five returning centers in the country. And then Michigan's also got Greg Crippen, who's been talked about for the last couple of years as like, oh yeah, he's going to be the guy in the next couple of years. And now he's going to be fighting for that job in spring. But anyway, that's kind of the question: is how much of a drop off is there? What does that combination look like between the new guys they've got coming in, between Barnhart and Jones competing for right tackle or left tackle? It's just kind of a, a general situation that uh, you know we're looking for signs of how that's going to play out. With the one caveat being that apparently both Nugent and Hinton are dealing with injuries and are mostly not practicing this spring. And Ladarius Henderson had his uh, apparently his graduation from Arizona State delayed partially, so he's not able to enroll in the summer. So all these new guys that we're looking at, wondering how they're going to fit in. We're not actually going to find out until fall, which is kind of disappointing. It's a little bit of a, an ask again later and a question that can't really get answered in spring. But I am curious about the returners, especially Barnhart, Jones, Percy, Crippen. Do any of those guys kind of solidify themselves where coming out of spring we're hearing Sharon Moore or Harbaugh talk about, oh, yeah, that guy's locked in. Like, we know he's taking a leap and he's, he's ready. It's more of can any of those guys, like, really establish themselves? For sure. We were very spoiled by Olu Oluwatimi. Yeah. <laughs> like, extraordinarily so. It's the first time, again, kind of like what I described earlier with the hockey team, the last couple of years of offensive line play have just kind of forced me to sharpen my ability to observe offensive line play. They're so good that they deserve fans who understand and appreciate just how good they are and what they're doing. And... Olu was a huge part of that last year. It's the first time in my entire fandom that I'm like, oh, I like remember that block. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Actually, that's not true. There's the one pancake block. I can't remember who did it now. That So I guess it kind of undermines my argument that I remember the block. But there's like the Notre Dame pancake block. He like pancakes the guy into the fucking sideline. Oh, right. That was uh, Steven Spinellis, I think. Yeah. I, that, I remember that block in a vacuum but don't remember who it was sure. right but like distinctly remember Olu Oluwatimi getting out there especially making second level blocks we all know about the one on the Edwards run and the Ohio State game right they forced me to truly get better at observing offensive line play yeah and that's really cool it's, it's interesting for me as an observer to now have a new layer of the game that I'm starting to understand with time that I didn't really understand okay they're big they stand there you know but like that's always what I thought like they're just big and they they take up space and you know whatever but they just like, lean on each other and yeah they just moves. lean on each other until someone gets through I don't know but you know it's required a little bit of that and replacing Olu like those are huge huge shoes yeah very curious to see how that works, not only because of how good he was at the actual like physical part, but because that's like the organizational leader of the line, right? Like the line calls aspect. Yep. Um, big shoes to fill. I'm not super concerned, honestly. I feel like if anything, 
this offensive line coaching staff and the players on this offensive line have very much earned the benefit of the doubt here. I really don't like until further notice, I default to the offensive line is going to be very good. So yeah, it's probably going to be one of the better offensive lines in the country again. I mean, they just have too many like already good established players there that it's hard to envision a scenario where something isn't working right. I kind of suspect that coming out of it, we'll have Nugent as starting center. Again, a two-year starter at Stanford, an all-Pac-12 guy who's seen as like one of the better returning centers in the country. That seems probable, depending on Greg Crippen and if he can take a leap past him, which, I mean, either way, you're going to end up with a very good player there. I kind of think you'll end up with Ladarius Henderson at one of the two spots. I think the expectation when he was brought in was that he's probably a like plug-and-play starter at one of the tackle spots. It's really just probably three guys for two spots between him and... Trente Jones and Carson Barnhart. And I guess we'll see about Miles Hinton. He was injured for a good amount of last year and then again in the spring. So it kind of feels like he's somebody who needs a little bit of time, maybe even takes a red shirt as an idea that's come up that you redshirt him this year, let him kind of get fully healthy and coached up. And then next year he steps in at that left tackle. That seems possible. I guess we'll see how it plays out. It'll be interesting. But to your point, it's just uh, it's more a situation of like, how do the pieces all fit together? Rather yeah, there than are the plenty of pieces. Like. Yeah. There are plenty of pieces. It's just a function of putting them together and how they're going to be put together. Yeah, absolutely. All right, number three. I mentioned we had a couple of hashtag B1, B1G things here. Mm-hmm. I think you know what this one is. Uh, special teams, specifically kicker and punter, where Michigan's losing two of the better ones in school history <laughs> after a few years of having, like, unprecedented stability and excellence especially at kicker i mean jake moody leaves as probably the most decorated michigan kicker of all time finished uh, i believe it was the illinois game winner that made him the uh all-time career field goals leader at michigan he won the groza in 2021 finished as a finalist didn't quite win it in 2022 but i mean unbelievable career and you have to replace that um, as well as robbins who robbins kind of had a, a rough end of last year after he was hurt. I think it was in the Rutgers game when he got his, his plant leg taken out and was very obviously not 100% after that. But, again, a guy who was an outstanding all-Big Ten-level kicker for, like, two and a half years, um, got invited to the Combine, he and Moody both. I mean, those are guys who are not as easy to replace as <laughs> you might generally think about with kind of a, a low-impact position. like Right, I mean, I'm imagining that, like, you know, you watch those Alabama teams of old and like the one, th- the, the, like the, the fatal Achilles flaw heel. on their death star. Like that's how you, you blew up their death star. Cause they didn't have a fucking kicker. Yep. If you could get them in a game where kicking mattered, it was, it was, it a, was a dicey. Yeah. Day. So, um, my thoughts are as follows. I hope our kicker is as good as Jake Moody. If not, I hope every, we win every game by 50. <laughs> that's analysis. I'll, I'll take the latter regardless of how good our kicker is. Honestly, fair enough. I will say that, uh, as far as potential replacements, Michigan's in pretty good shape here. They brought in uh, – so last year they had Tommy Doman as a freshman. He was – I had to go back and look this up, but he was the number two-rated punter in the class and the number six-rated kicker. He might end up doing both this year. I think that's entirely possible. He had one punt last year for about 41 yards and two extra points. Like, he, he got out on the field a couple times and looked 
like he basically knew what he was doing, which is a good start. I didn't know that there was ever a point where Moody didn't kick the extra points. I have so no recollection of this, but it might have been feels, like that feels like a good sign. I don't know. It might have been like at the tail end of the Hawaii game where it wasn't Moody. I, I honestly don't remember. Exactly. The warm up games. Yes. More to my point about these <laughs> games being good. Thank you. That's right. Uh, so it sounds like it might be Doman at both spots, or he might be the, the leader, I guess, given that he's the only guy who's actually seen the field in that capacity, and at the very least was a very highly rated punter who probably gives you at least what you saw from Robbins at the tail end of last year when he was kind of struggling. I think that's the floor that Doman gives you. At kicker, a little bit less certain. They did also bring in Adam Smaha from Ann Arbor, who was also the number six kicker in this year's class. So they've got Doman and Smaha, both number six ranked kickers in their respective classes two years in a row. You would assume that one of them will probably be fine. And if they start to struggle, then you've got an alternative. Like, I don't think this is a situation like you used to see 20 years ago where, you know, sometimes you just had a kicker and he didn't turn out to be good. And it was a complete shit show because you didn't have really other options. They've got two pretty good ones. It's just a matter of you never really know with college kickers, hashtag college kickers, right? Until <laughs> you put them in some moments that, that matter and you kind of see how their, uh, how their mechanics and their consistency hold up. So it's going to be a little bit nerve wracking to some extent until we actually see that happen or don't see that happen, I guess. <laughs> to your point, if we were winning every game by, uh, by four or five touchdowns for the first half of the year, it might not be till late when something actually comes up and we got to find out what we have there. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the question, and it's probably Doman and or Samaha in some combination. Yeah, that's about right. I still hope we win every game by 50. Thank that would you. be great. All right, down to our last two items. Number four, and we both had this one as well pretty high. It was a very consistent list across the two of us. Yeah, so we didn't collude, but we landed with the same. Almost exactly the same yeah. top five, yeah. Number four is defensive end. And I think this one's a little bit similar to the offensive line situation where there are several guys and the floor is very high because some of those guys have already played and looked fine. I just want to say that I think the floor is very high is actually the unofficial (laughs) slogan of this podcast, which is great because we remember times where the floor was very low. Okay. Yeah. We've seen some years with very low floors at certain positions that mattered and it was not a good time at all. So the floor is high is not... It's not like a backhanded compliment. It's not intended to be that. No, it's good. It's very good. I don't think anybody... Does anybody think the floor is high as a backhanded compliment? Do people I think, think sometimes because it's like, well, okay, it's you're going to be okay, but that sort of implies that like it's not going to be good. It's just going to be okay. But no, that's not... that would be... The, the ceiling is mid. <laughs> like they're interpreting the floor well, right, as high I mean, as the that, ceiling is mid. I think Those sometimes the when same. you say the floor is high, it implies that the ceiling is not high. No. But that's not what I'm... Like at the yeah. very least, you're going to be good. That's the... Impl- I don't know. Correct. Yeah. It, I'm saying there's like asymmetric upside here. <laughs> I see. But I think that's right. That like between the guys that they have coming back, which Jalen Harrell obviously was a significant player last year, kind of a co-starter at the non-Mike Morris end. Yes, one of Jim Harbaugh's 32 starters. <laughs> Correct, yeah. And Morris is obviously the guy who is the like probably the most difficult to replace. Yeah, the the thing that gives you a little bit of like hope or good feeling about that is he didn't play for a good chunk of 
the second half of the season, right? I mean, Morris was out for extended. He didn't play in the Ohio Illinois State game. He missed the Illinois game and he missed the Ohio State game. And right. I, I can't recall, honestly, if he ended up He didn't look the... right in the TCU game either. Yeah, like, yeah. he wasn't there. That, whatever, I don't want to talk about the TCU <laughs> game. But, like... Just pretend that never happened. Yeah, I'm eternal sunshining that shit out of my brain. Thank right. you. So they got other guys time and those other guys, I mean, when I say the floor is high, I'm kind of talking about Jalen Harrell. And in that case, I'm maybe that is a backhanded compliment because I think we know what we've got in Harrell. Like he's not an elite pass rusher. He's not particularly big in a way that he can hold up well against the run. He's just kind of solid all around and that's fine. Like that's, that's the fallback option, I think. But they brought in Josiah Stewart from Coastal Carolina as a transfer, a two-time All-Sun Belt player. Especially two years ago, he had a huge year. I think led the Sun Belt in sacks and tackles for loss as a freshman. And then last year took a little bit of a step back, but was still like second-team All-Sun Belt. Still was a pretty good pass rusher. And I think from Michigan's point of view, if you can get the, get him out there, especially on like third-down situations, let him play like a weak side end spot. He's a little bit undersized, but he probably has more pure pass rush skill than anybody else on the roster right now. So that's the guy I think that is most kind of enticing as far as something that they struggled a little bit with last year. We saw it a little bit from like Oki, right? When he would get out there and sometimes you'd see, oh shit, like he just went like went and got that quarterback and didn't, <laughs> you know, blew past the tackle or made a move or whatever. You could see things there that other guys couldn't do yeah he's a bit of a loss actually I hadn't really thought about that he is so I think Stewart will probably fill that role and he certainly had much more production than Oki had when he came in so hopefully you'll see that but more refined already I think that's the hope with Stewart and then you've obviously got Braden McGregor who... and also I kind of believe in uh Coastal Carolina's coaching like I think I think Jimmy yeah. Chadwell's pretty good, right? Yeah, I mean, especially on the offensive side of the ball, they were very creative. Yeah. So I mean, I don't I don't know, know much about their defense, but I do enjoy want, watching the Chanticleers' offense, and I do think they're pretty well the coached. Pretentious roosters. I call them pretentious roosters. Yeah. Like you're a rooster from Chaucer. <laughs> that's great. like that's literally where it's from. Chaucer. Yeah. If you look up where Chanticleers came from, that's exactly where it came from. Though I don't know that like. Didn't Chaucer, this is so, this is such a Michigan podcast right now, but actually I don't know if it's fair to call them pretentious roosters because it wasn't Chaucer's whole thing that he was like subversive for the time. He was kind of like vulgar and subversive for the time and not like uppity in the... I've gone past my level of Chaucer knowledge. Fine. So I feel like I learned this in high school. Somebody who's listening to this maybe can But right, like he was supposed here. to be like the antithesis to the like stuffy old English writing of the t- I don't know maybe someone who knows so more like English a than me rooster would that be the idea yeah I don't know if it's pretentious okay. really but I don't know someone who I like I literally I'm this is like honors English like I'm dredging up 15 years ago history yeah, okay I need smarter people than need to yeah to I, this one out. I'm not an English major okay but no I do think that's right anyway anyway Josiah Stewart <laughs> peak Michigan podcast but I, I was also saying that I mean whatever you get from Stewart You've got a couple other really interesting options as well. First being Braden McGregor, who you kind of saw last year come along. And in the Ohio State game, he had a couple really nice plays with uh, batted down passes that he almost intercepted. The second one in particular was an inch from being a pick six that would have put that game away even earlier than it actually was put away. Not that it ended up mattering, but anyway, you saw, if you remember, he was really badly injured at the end of his high school career. And he's kind of been working his way back from that. And I think last year you started to see the first real glimpses of like what Braden McGregor could be. And that was pretty encouraging. So you've got Stewart, you've got McGregor. You've also got um, Derek Moore, 
who I, I know he didn't get a ton of time last year, but keep in mind he was a top 50 overall recruit that Michigan stole from Oklahoma when Lincoln Riley left. And he's probably the one guy on the roster who, unlike Stewart and a little bit unlike McGregor, those are both kind of lankier pass rushy guys. Moore is more like Morris, where he's like 280 pounds and has kind of the all-around package. And so I think you might end up seeing Moore take over for Morris at strong side end and then some rotation and kind of figuring out what you have at weak side end. Or maybe you're just moving guys around between the two spots trying to figure out what your best combination is. But again, like offensive line, you've got enough options there that look pretty encouraging and have already shown some ability either as pass pass rushers or just more generally all-around defensive end capability that, I'll say again, the floor is high, and it's not necessarily an underhanded compliment. It's it's that the floor is high, and also between Moore, McGregor, and Stewart, I think you've got a lot of interesting potential there, and it's just a matter of figuring out how to put those pieces together in a way that makes it all kind of greater than the sum of the parts. What do you think are the odds that we will get some pass rush from the tackle spot? I think encouraging. I mean, Jenkins, I think Jenkins is one of the better defensive linemen in the country. I think he's pretty underrated. And he's definitely shown an ability to to move more than somebody like Mozzie. I mean, Mozzie was just never that style of player. He was a, a nose tackle, basically, who was going to, like, overwhelm you physically on the interior and kind of blow shit up in the run game. But he was never much of a pass rusher. Jenkins and Graham, I think, both have that ability to, like, first step and kind of with their their footwork, like, do a little bit more in terms of collapsing the pocket. So I'm pretty optimistic in that regard that the interior pressure will be better. And I'm hopeful that, like I said, with the guys they have on the outside, that you'll see them take a step forward. And all around, you'll just have more ability almost across the board to win one-on-one and get pressure in a way that we didn't see I, I, we saw some games where they were really able to. Yeah, do but it was damage, mostly but bad it was mostly, offensive right, lines. Yeah. It bad. was mostly when just they were completely out talenting. Here's looking at you, Indiana. Indiana. Yeah, specifically Indiana. Yeah. I think this year you'll see a little bit of a step forward in that direction because they just have more guys across the board who are going to be out there regularly and are capable, have shown themselves capable, I think, of, of winning one on one matchups. Yeah, I just asked that question because. We were talking about this before we hit record, but it's kind of a weird spot for me as a Michigan fan because for as long as I can really remember, the ends have really outshined the tackles at Michigan. Yeah. Just in general. Like, it's been an end factory for Outside like... of like Mo Hurst. Right. Or, or maybe back to you know, the Brian Glasgow era. Right. Like. <laughs> but I'm I'm very accustomed to seeing very good ends and not so great tackles in general. In general, there are exceptions, but in general, um, really interesting that this year I feel very, very good about the tackles. I think that's one of the strongest positions maybe on the whole team. Agreed. And the ends are where you're like, oh, that's weird. Because for the longest time, it's just been a string of, you know, you're Gary, you're Winovich, you're Hutchinson, you're mm-hmm. Ojabo, you're like, you, they just. I mean, even guys like Josh Uche and, and Mike Dana before that. I mean, guys who were not even necessarily like starters, full-time starters were 
a really Super Bowl it, winner, it really, Mike yeah. Dana, to yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And no, I, I think that's right. So it's just kind of an interesting spot to have questions about the ends. We had them before last season, too. Same thing. After losing yeah. Hachin Ojaba, we kind of knew this was coming. And no one obviously came close to playing at either one of those guys' level. I don't know I how mean, long. Mike Morris it will was be. Big Ten Defensive Lineman of the Year. He was yeah. not exactly bad. It, it didn't help that he was out for some of right. the, or, you know, heavily hobbled for some of the most critical games. So. Right. Yeah, but and I was gonna say a defensive tackle. Still not even, close to Aiden Hutchinson or David no, Ojabo. <laughs> yeah, not too far off from Ojabo. I don't think all around. I mean, Morris was a really good run defender and a pretty good pass rusher. Not quite at Ojabo's level as a pass rusher, but when you kind of look at the overall balance, yeah, yeah. But I was gonna say a defensive tackle. It's not even just the starters. Jenkins and Graham, I assume, are gonna be kind of the two main guys there. But they have Rayshon Benny behind that and Kenneth Grant, who was one of Harbaugh's, you know, God's gift to football, like a guy who's 370 pounds and can move like somebody who's 100 pounds lighter than him. I mean, they've got... That's Georgia shit right there. Yeah, they've got guys there who could really be something. And when you think about being able to roll out like four plus, you know, Big Ten, like good Big Ten starter level players at defensive tackle, yeah, that's when you're getting into Georgia territory of like, okay, this is... <laughs> This is this is something. We got something here. For sure. So last one. Last one. And I think we're at a little bit of a drop off here from kind of the most interesting. It was really the top four were kind of where we were at a consensus. Number five, I think it's interesting in that it's sort of a another position that's kind of up for grabs with a, a high floor, but a little bit of uncertainty around exactly how it shapes out. And that is the non-junior Colson inside linebacker spot. It's interesting. We saw uh, Ernest Hausman came in as a transfer from Nebraska, right? And I think 24-7 had him as the number one or number two overall transfer in the class and then named him as one of their top ten returning linebackers in the country. No, I think he was like first. He was number one. And then I think when Travis Hunter transferred from uh, Jackson State with Dion to Colorado, I think he became number one. So Hausman ended up number two. I got you. But at the time, yeah, he was number one. And then they named him one of the top ten returning linebackers in the country. Which is pretty wild. I mean, he had a like pretty solid freshman year at Nebraska, but didn't jump out to me as like, oh shit, this guy's an All-American. Like, we got to have him. It felt to me more like uh, he's already shown he's competent as a freshman and he's got a lot of upside, so we'll bring him in and you know, a couple of years from now we'll probably have a really good player. But you've got Hausman, you've got Nakai Hell Green, who presumably still exists. We <laughs> remember last year it was, oh yeah, Hill Green still dealing with a, a soft tissue injury. He's a couple weeks away, a couple weeks away, a couple weeks away, and then we never saw him all year. But assuming that he's come, he comes back, he was right there with Junior Colson as a freshman. I mean, they were both basically starting and looked you know, about, I think in terms of overall capability and competence, they looked pretty similar over the course of that year. So if he comes back and is, you know, he's probably going to have a little bit of rust to shake off, but certainly looked like he was going to be a, a good starter. Um, and so you've got him in the mix, and then you've got Michael Barrett, who really was never supposed to be an inside linebacker, but when Hill Green went down last year, they had to move him into the lineup, and by the end of the season, I thought he was at least average, if not above average, as a starter, as an inside linebacker, even though he was always kind of undersized. But obviously it was very nice for Michigan to be able to get him back for a sixth year, like they did with um, with Mikey Sainer still. So to have you know Barrett coming back as kind of the nominal starter from the end of last year when, again, he looked like a at the very least uh, an average to a slightly above average player, plus Hill Green, plus Hausman, you've got 
three pretty interesting options there, and I'm curious how that shakes out. You know, is, is Hill Green still the same player he was a year and a half ago? How good is Ernest Hausman? Is he really, you know, if he's a top 10 linebacker in the country, then sure, let's let's see what he's got. Yeah, I looked it up. It was really on three's ranking, but the point stands. I'm sorry, stands, on three, not 24. It was on three's ranking. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at it. They put this out right at the end of February, so just a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. I'm skeptical, though, because their third ranking is Tommy Eichenberg and I don't think Tommy <laughs> Tommy two thumbs <laughs> I don't think he please we rewatched that game like a couple weeks ago and like nobody has ever loved a nickname more than the Fox guys love Tommy two thumbs yes it was unbelievable actually I was like please stop saying that it's not even good for the love of God but yeah I was skeptical because I didn't actually think he was that good they like they were like, wow, he's being great in this game. Like, he's playing six inches from the line of scrimmage. Yeah, like, yeah. shut the fuck up. Whatever. Fine. I'll, I'll get over he's it like one a, day. He's a pretty good run defending kind of traditional middle linebacker. But, like, not a great athlete. He's not a guy who's ever going to be, like, a you know early a first-round pick or anything like that. Yeah, he's I mean, that's why this ranking is top 10 linebackers in college football and not top 10 draft prospects at linebacker, which are not if the same top thing, really. A linebacker, or a top 10 draft prospect at linebacker, he'd be... You know, getting ready for the draft right now. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you make a compelling point, yes. But what was Hausman like? The he number, was number eight, number he nine. He was ninth. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't have Junior Colson on the list, which is really interesting for a guy who was, I believe, second team All Big Ten coaches and media. Whereas no. Hausman was not any of that. I mean, there again, two he, Penn State guys in this top ten though. Penn State's honestly, Penn State's defense is pretty loaded. So I've been yeah. starting to look at you know some of the returners for next year, like. Penn State, I, I kind of get the top 10 hype. It's really just a question of, do they have a quarterback, basically? How and also, do they have a head coach? Well, we I we, we kind of know the answer to that one already. It's not as much of a question. Okay, are we done talking about this? for like? Do you have more thoughts on linebackers? Because I have a thing I want to say. No, I don't have that much else on linebackers. It was just, it's the last kind of relatively unsettled spot when you're talking about like position battles. So I wanted to throw that out there. But yeah, talk shit about James Franklin. Go. You No, I'm talking shit about Ryan Day because oh, no. for the longest time, they would put out these stupid... We, we complain about them every... An annual tradition on the Forever Saturday podcast is to complain about those top 10 coaches in the sport list that everybody puts out at this time of year. Feldman did one a couple... Like last week. I think 24-7, 24/7 Feldman and Stuart one. Mandel both... Uh, they all... all like every, yeah, somebody puts one out and then everybody else puts one out to Correct. Like argue about it. Like, it's like number one off-season fodder. It's, the, right. it's like the, it's the number one thing. But for the longest time, if you remember, we would get... Jim Harbaugh not in the top 10 or worse like um 10 miles behind James Franklin because of that one fluky ass Big Ten title mm-hmm. that they won in 2016 that dumb fluky ass Ohio State game they managed to win whereas Harbaugh's been like more successful even before 2021 Correct. right he'd been more successful basically across the board outside of the one yeah the the one incredibly fluky Penn State win that Correct. got them a big so title. uh congratulations Ryan Day I am anointing you as as the new Jim Harbaugh because <laughs> you sit behind James Franklin in a lot of these rankings congratulations it is extremely funny like it's also horseshit because like I mean, he's lost three regular season games correct. right it's Across it's three recent, years. it's just recency bias o'clock it's like the dumbest yeah. shit on the planet you can basically write a formula for exactly what these lists are going to look like which is give me the top 25 from last year give me a little bit of extra weighting if it was a team that kind of popped out of nowhere you know a Kansas with Lance Leopold or uh, you know a couple years ago coastal with Jamie Chadwell 
and then give me a little bit of a, a drag downward if they haven't been able to, you know, win a, a conference championship like Harbaugh saw a couple years ago. Like, I could write a, a fucking Excel formula that basically pumped out exactly what these lists are going to look like almost every year. And okay, wait, I'm going to ask you to do that now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do that for the benefit of the pod. I think you have to. But you know what I mean. Like, you, you basically right. know you, exactly what these are I want you to base it off of like. SP Plus and like a whole one. You No, Bill Connolly right, has the numbers. That's going to be like an April exercise, I'm making you do that now. <laughs> Sorry. You signed up for it. But yeah. I, I want to see how closely you can replicate one of the lists. It is very funny, though, because. With a formula. <laughs> all right. Well, well, I'll see what I can do on that front. But no, it's just very funny because you know what these lists are going to look like. And then there's like one or two hot takes thrown in there. And it, like, I'm, I'm just thinking that Ryan Day has won Noah Ruggles field goal away from winning a national title. <laughs> Correct. So like, And if he had won the national title, he'd be like number two on that same list. But because Noah Ruggles just completely shanked that kick to beat Georgia, he's like number eight behind James Franklin or whatever. And also, while we're talking about James Franklin, I just... I made this point when I saw those lists come out that, like, I don't think there's a coach in college football that gets more water carrying from the media for being nice to them, which I'm not saying that, like, you should be an asshole. I'm just saying that, like, it shouldn't matter, and it obviously does, because you know, like, who gives people a lot of media access and who is kind of a dick to everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's the same reason Michigan gets all their players on on Feldman's fucking freaks list is because they're nice to him and they give him good access and then he puts and the they Michigan guys. It. They're like, we want to get our guys that publicity or that. Correct. You know. So when you have your relationship and you make it work for you and that's what James Franklin does with everyone. Correct. That's one yeah. thing I can't work into the formula. I don't, like, I don't I'm not there as the, the you, writer. You, you need know, to give them like James a goodwill Franklin. score and like put it in the formula uh, somehow. Yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> that sounds challenging. But you got to watch some clips of these coaches and see how they interact with the media and then like rate them out of 10 and put the goodwill score in the formula man you're putting a lot of <laughs> a lot you're of not busy at work right now okay you have time that you know of. <laughs> you have made this happen but no i mean i think i just think thought it was really funny because it is objectively hilarious to put james franklin multiple spots ahead of a coach he's never beaten like and again, a coach who's lost three games in three years and Correct. came within one field goal of a national title. James Franklin has never done anything close to that. It's so funny. To be fair, Ryan Day was born on third base. But it's funny. At the same time. I love it. I'm so glad that Ryan Day gets to occupy the oh, space yeah. that Jim Harbaugh has occupied no, for the last funny. five years. Even if it's, it's very funny. It's bullshit, but I am entertained by it. Okay? It's like Jersey Shore. And that is the important. <laughs> it's exactly like Jersey Shore. Perfect metaphor. No notes. But no, seriously, I think that's funny. I thought you all would enjoy it as much as I did. And so I had to interject when James Franklin came up. Thank you. That's entirely fair. One other sort of Big Ten adjacent thing we wanted to talk about was last week there was some uh, there were some rumblings that came out. I think it was The Athletic published a story about the Big Ten scheduling format. And apparently there is a lot of dispute uh, among the athletic directors around what that's going to look like. It does sound like the the general format is going to be what we hypothesized and what the SEC is rolling out, which is you have each team has three locked-in rivals. And it's not a pod. It's not like you have three teams that are in a mini division with you where you all play each other. Everybody's teams can be different. But you have three teams that you have locked-in rivalries with every year. And then for your other six conference games, you just rotate between the remaining 12 teams in the league that Aren't, you aren't already playing by virtue of them being a locked-in rival with you. 
Right. So for Michigan example, it could, for example, it could be Ohio State, Michigan State, and I don't know, call it Rutgers. Those could be their three locked-in rivals. And then the 12 other teams in the conference, they just split them in half. And Michigan plays, uh, you know, six this year, and then they play the same six on the road next year. You know, they rotate home and road every every two years, and then the next two years they get the other set of six. I'm probably not explaining this very well, but hopefully that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I think I think people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with what the format is going to look like, at least to some degree. That's but the fair. thing that I don't like about it is that all the whispers are they're going to lock us into USC or UCLA. Well, that was the really interesting thing about the story is that why as you might do you expect, insist on fucking over <laughs> your best teams? Why you don't have to do this? I mean, you know exactly why, which is that. They're just—they're now being bringing in over a billion dollars, right, in revenue. Who cares? From We're gonna deals. play them every other fucking year anyway. Oh, right. We get a home and home every like it. And that's where the dispute is coming in. I think is that all the TV partners want more top-tier games. They want Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, USC, like all those teams playing each other as many times as possible. Give us premier games every week, as many as you can. And the athletic directors, the, apparently, the pushback is we're you know we're arguing about who our rivals are like michigan doesn't want to have for obvious reasons ohio state penn state usc as their locked in rivalry games every year you're going to give them like each of those teams you're going to set up the like most difficult possible path to them making the playoff and those are your premier teams that are going to be in the best position to potentially go to the playoff and win national championships so there's just a balancing there that you have to do between like not handicapping your best teams like actually giving them a chance to win national titles, which the Big Ten I'm sure is going to care about, and also giving networks like properties that they want regularly. Yeah, the, their positions are in total conflict right now because right. if you're Michigan or Ohio State or maybe even the Big Ten, I mean the Big Ten gets a significant payout when one of its teams makes the playoff also, right, as Correct. a conference. And so – you're saying, how do I balance the highest number of marquee games for television so that the people who have paid us this lucrative contract are happy? But also, I need to keep my member institutions happy, and I need to make sure that I'm not putting my best candidates for the playoff in a position where I've made it as hard as humanly, physically possible for them to get there. And so there's a little bit of of you know the position Michigan's gonna want to take, they're like, fine, we, we Ohio State, we get it, we're stuck with them. Right, Michigan obviously, come. Michigan and Ohio State them. both want that rival. They want in. that, but like other than that, I mean, you know, there was a lot of talk. I don't know if this is true or not, but there was talk that Michigan, when it ranked its rivals, did not include Michigan State, and I was like. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, of course, like, of course we wouldn't. Like, we're we're not afraid of you. Like, your team is mid. Fuck off. But it's just that, like, we know we're gonna get Ohio State to begin with. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that they're gonna want to put us with someone else good, whether it be Penn State. Or we also know that Michigan State's probably gonna put us first. So, right. like, it's just a matter of like you're doing a little little game theory on like on the yeah. way that you it's like match day kind of stuff where yeah. you're trying to figure out who you want to play and who you don't want to play yeah and, it's and... Like sorority recruitment works like this interestingly <laughs> enough um but no, no there is some aspect of that right well and part of the story was that at least one of the scenarios that's been suggested or, or bandied about i guess among the ad's is michigan is locked in with usc every year as one of their rivals and ohio state is locked in with ucla do not want that that gives us the hardest schedule in the Big Ten, easily. 
Yeah, probably. Michigan, or you mean Michigan getting Ohio State and USC? I mean, those are two perennial top 10 teams locked in. Unless Ohio State's other locked in rival is Penn State. You know, and, and Michigan gets Rutgers or Penn something like that. Penn State's worse than USC and Penn State's worse than Ohio State. Oh, agreed. But if, if like, Ohio State's locked in rivals were Michigan, US, or UCLA, Penn State, whereas Michigan's were Ohio State, USC, and Rutgers, like, the drop-off between Penn State and Rutgers probably, you know, there's ways that you could balance it. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely fucking over two of your top teams if you do that because they're both going to play each other. And then, especially the team that gets USC – it looks like, you know, where they're at and where, where we've seen them be at times in the last 25 years. Unless they think defense is optional forever. Oh, which... they, well, they do think defense is optional because Lincoln Riley's their head coach. And that's true. <laughs> that's just an inherent, like, that's a, almost a, a feature, not even a bug for uh, as far as he's concerned. But, yeah, it's – and I looked at this a little bit when, um, you know, last year I had built out one of our episodes was, like, what does the potential new scheduling format look like? And then they added USC and UCLA right after that. And I kind of went back recently and revisited it to try to figure out what do you do with USC and UCLA because they don't really have any – like there's no traditional rivalries, right? And so you either end up putting them with you, – you kind of match them up with random teams like Maryland who also don't have a ton of traditional rivals or – you put them against some of your premier programs and then you lose out on maybe a Michigan, Michigan state or a Penn state, Ohio state games that kind of are already rivals that or rivalries that you want to maintain. Like there's really no way to integrate those teams without kind of blowing throwing, it up out, a throwing out some of what you have existing. And that's just, that just is what it is. Like kind it's happening. Of, and now it's just a matter of how kind of an aside. I'm curious about whether USC will continue to schedule Notre Dame because that's like it's their really marquee rivalry is Notre Dame, right? They play that game the last weekend of the year every year, don't they? Same as we do. Don't Listen. they always play that last? Or am I making that up? Does that one rotate? <sighs> Nonetheless, I think it's their marquee rivalry game. I think that's fair. I mean, USC and UCLA. Yeah. Also, I, s- I still think Notre Dame is their marquee rivalry game. UCLA is like a mid-football school most of the time. So, like, let, like that's not a real entrenched. I think USC-Notre I mean, Dame. USC-Notre Dame is a blue blood yeah. on blue blood football game, sure, right? Yeah. So, it, it's different. I think USC-UCLA is usually the, the finale. Sometimes they play Notre Dame Maybe earlier. that's right. But I would agree that Notre Dame-USC is... Is the premier they, rivalry USC, for USC. If you're going to lock them into Ohio State and Michigan or whatever the fuck nonsense you're going to do, they have no incentive to play Notre Dame on top yeah. of all of that. Literally none. I don't know, like, if why you would possibly elect to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, the Notre Dame question remains, do they get forced into a conference because the USC's won't schedule them anymore? I don't know. Realistically, I think Notre Dame doesn't get forced into a conference per se because I think that conferences that they exist right as they exist right now probably don't exist in 15 years because you have some sort of split of the upper level of FBS, and it doesn't actually matter. Notre Dame just ends up in that group because I mean, if they can af- they can afford to be on their own right now, they'd certainly be in the tier of teams that would get <laughs> would get pulled into. You well, know, right, but it's a ske- it's a scheduling problem, though. I mean, like even the yeah. NFL, right? Which you could you could fashion as a league of thirty two. You know, of like think about if you took 
the top 32 teams in college football and made them a league that's of their own, right? About. And that's ba- like it's functionally a miniature NFL. Yes. But even then, you need your divisions and your divisions to help create the scheduling and make sure that everybody in the division sure. plays the crossover division that you're crossed over with that year or whatever else. Like they're going to be forced into that system somehow and grouped yes. with someone. Right. It's just a function of, of who that is. I, I don't know. That day is coming. I was just curious about that, because if you're USC and you're getting put in this situation, too, where, you know, you're paired up with either Ohio State or Michigan every year, like year yeah. in, year out. I'm not adding Notre Dame to that for shit. Like, no. there's no way. Stanford. Fine. You suck. But like. <laughs> You know, well, UCLA, like you're in my conference, away. but I'm not, I'm not adding Notre Dame for no reason. And maybe the only reason is that, you know, the stuffy ones will riot and that's enough just to appease your like historic fan base. But I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't really think they will. And, and I'm not sure that Notre Dame, I mean, it would help Notre Dame obviously to have more of those rivalries, but they also well, have How's the, Notre Dame going to make the playoff if they don't get to play nobody? Because nobody's going to schedule them. Oh, they've already figured that out. I mean, they've got the ACC deal, right? Where they're functionally a half an ACC team right I now. I fucking hate them. They can't keep getting away with that bullshit. They can't be a Big Ten hockey team and an ACC basketball team and a half ACC football team. Get in line. <laughs> They'll always get away with it. I hate them. God. God, it's annoying. Fucking exceptionalism for them. Whatever. No, I just just thought it was an interesting question. We're we're all over the place. I'm like no, I'm tangent. I went on Chaucer. I'm on tangent after tangent today. I'm also like very briefly. I'm going to talk about this. I think it's a really interesting time for sports broadcasting because you're seeing pro sports broadcasting the regional model, like not NFL because that's kind of exempt. It's its own national, fully organized thing, but like baseball basketball hockey all operate on the regional model right with like ballet sports and then some other regional properties that i think are discovery time warner um where all all of them are like going into bankruptcy or essentially are financially insolvent and they're saying to the leagues either renegotiate with us at substantial discounts and we'll continue broadcasting or just take over and run them yourselves and in that case you're probably going to see like a direct to consumer model where everything is something like mlb tv where you buy packages of your team or the overall league for a much higher price than we're paying right now for the regional network as part of a broader cable package. All these years of all viewers subsidizing sports viewers by paying $5 a month for Bally Sports Arizona to be on their cable package, that now, like the brunt of that is going to be borne by you if you want that specifically. You're going to have to go buy the package from Major League Baseball or from NHL or whatever. And this is really not related to college football right now because college football has all these locked-in long-term deals. But as we were talking about what it looks like in the future, that's just something that I think right now it's all about TV eyeballs. And you've seen the pro sports, like that is that is dying in pro sports. The idea that TV eyeballs can, can save you and, and be the basis for a broadcasting structure. So I think that's going to be something that is just, with all the uncertainty around what college football looks like in a decade, between you know nil and players becoming employees and the top half of fbs like we were talking about maybe splitting off and becoming its own super league or whatever broadcasting is an interesting part of that because right now it's driving a lot of realignment and the money that's coming in is contributing to all the talk about players getting paid and and there's just a lot of things that i think that's one that's not really getting talked about as far as potential impact in some direction or some form over the next decade that kind of feels like its own episode like a business of sports kind of it's pretty interesting yeah TV we could do broadcasting that if, deep dive yeah if people are, if interested, are interested in that in, i used to work for fox sports arizona if you didn't know that that was one of my 
previous life roles before I did murders and acquisitions. Totally different. <laughs> it just it sounded like you just said murders and acquisitions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell people about that part. You just did. Oh, All shit. 250 people who listen to this or whatever the number is. Keep that on the download, just between you and me and the 250 listeners. But yeah, no, I used to work there, so I have a, a, a pretty good kind of window into how that works. And there's been some really interesting disclosures recently as part of these like bankruptcy filings with all the regional networks. It, it is, I think, a really interesting topic. I don't know if y'all are interested, but if so, let us know. And that's something I am, we could, so we're going to do we, it. We can do an episode. All right. I've decided. After, that and my Excel after model. After you build an Excel <laughs> model of trying to replicate Bruce Feldman's list mathematically. Really, really high expectations for my Excel skills, honestly. I've seen you use Excel, okay? There are like formulas that are like 19 rows long or some nonsense. Like you you can do this. Sure. On that note. (laughs) On that, yeah, I think we're done here. Before I ramble way too much about, I don't know what else I can possibly ramble about today. We're going to let this one go. And... We'll probably be back before the spring game and do another one. Definitely. And I think we'll be back right after as well because we're going to go maybe in the episode right prior. You guys can let us know what you want us to keep our eyes peeled for. And we'll do that and report back yeah. as best as we can. So with that, if you're still here, thank you for listening. And we'll see you back next week. Go Blue.